Good morning again, church. Man, I love that song. Don't you guys? Such a reminder that I know I forget that I'm a child of God, that I'm not forsaken, that God is with us. It really has nothing to do with what we're going into, but I just, I love that song, so I wanted to, I wanted to share that. For those of you who have no idea who I am, what a great start, right? Uh, my name is Chad Lowe. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Um, I'm so glad that you've chosen to worship with us this morning, that you get to be with us today. I do ask if this is your first time or you're, you're new here that you do fill out the Connect card. We really do want to get to know you, and we do have a gift for you because we like to give away free stuff, so um, take advantage of that. Um, but we really hope that you have a great Tri-Village experience. At Tri-Village, we have a saying here that a lot of churches say that you're welcome, and we believe that you are welcomed here. But we don't just believe that you're welcome. We also believe that you are wanted and needed here. You're welcomed, wanted, and needed here. And so I really do hope that you have a, a wonderful time joining our TVC family, our dysfunctional um, but awesome family. And so that, that would be great. Um, we have been going through a series this summer called One Story, Jesus and Abraham, where we've been looking at the thread of the gospel throughout all of Scripture as we've been pouring into Genesis, particularly in the life of Abraham, and seeing that the gospel is present throughout all of Scripture, and that we get to see how Abraham points to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so today, as we're, uh, we're, we're getting actually to the end of this, end of the, the series, and we're getting to a much later point in Abraham's life, and we get to see this testing of Abraham. Abraham, a man who is tested, and what it means to trust in the provision of the Lord what it means to trust in God when our faith is stretched, when our faith is tested. So we are going to be looking at Genesis chapter 22 today. If you have your Bibles, would you open them up to Genesis chapter 22? Um, if you don't have a Bible, um, the passage will be on the screen. We also have Bibles in the back, and we'd love to give you one. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one um, as our gift to you. If you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. One of the things we do here out of reverence, out of respect for God's Word, is we stand as we read. If you are with me, say amen. amen. All right, Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey, he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I go, while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham! Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and in there in the thickets he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over there and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed, because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word through this difficult, tough passage in the life of Abraham, this moment of testing. God, I pray that as we study your word, as we read your word, as we explore your word, that you would show us what you have for us today. Lord, let your word convict us. Let it compel us 
Let it spur us on in our love for you. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be moving in and through your word and in and through this time together. God, that you would be opening our eyes and our hearts and our minds to see and hear and know of your great love. And Lord, that we would be changed because of it. Lord, I pray that as I speak, whatever comes from me, whatever words that I have that come from my pride or my intellect, Lord, that then be forgotten. But Lord, let the words that come from you, from your spirit, that work through me, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't forget them. Lord, we want your spirit and your words to edify, to shape, and to compel us. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. Pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So here we are at this significant, trying point in Abraham's life. Years later in the life of Abraham, this is towards the end of his journey in the Old Testament. But before we dive in a little bit further, there's a few things that have happened. If you were with us last week where we talked about the account of Abraham interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah, a lot, has t- a lot of time has elapsed since then, and a lot of things have happened. And so there's a few things that are really important for us to know that have happened since then so that we can really understand what's going on in this passage. The first one, as you may have gathered from context, is that Abraham and Sarah have had a son, and his name is Isaac. That's great. Um, So what happened before is that three visitors came. They told Abraham and and Sarah that they would have a son. And a year later, that's what happened. And now here we are roughly between 13 and 40 years later, um, which is a long, it's a big gap, but, but we're roughly there. And we see that Isaac has been born to Abraham and Sarah. The second thing that we need to understand that has happened before this passage is if you remember Hagar, the maidservant of Sarah, um, a few weeks back we also talked about her and the role that she played in the life of Abraham. How Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham to marry him, to conceive and have a son so that their family line wouldn't end because Sarah was barren. And that they went and used their own means instead of trusting in the Lord. So what's happened now is after Isaac was born, shortly after, as they were commemorating and celebrating this, um, the, the son that Abraham and Hagar had together, Ishmael, was mocking Isaac, was mocking this whole situation. And Sarah, she had some bad blood with Hagar. And so seeing Ishmael's mocking went to Abraham and said, get them out of here. I don't want them to be a part of your inheritance. I don't want them to be a part of the blessing. I don't want them around anymore. You need to make Hagar and Ishmael leave. And Abraham, because this is his son, doesn't want to make that happen. But the Lord comes to him and says, it's okay. I'm still going to make Ishmael a great nation. I will still bless him. You can send him away. I am with them. And so he does. And so Hagar and Ishmael are sent away. And so now it's just Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac in this passage. And and this is where we're at. So imagine with me, you see these like two retirees. They're roughly around like 110, 120 years old. Um, So if you ever live that long in retirement, Lord be with you. But we, uh, we see that these, these two, this couple, Abraham and Sarah, these retirees with their son, they're finally living in the fruits of the faithfulness that they've walked in. They have their promised blessing in Isaac. They're in the land. They're prominent. They have all these things. They, they're living in the beauty and enjoyment of living in Florida in the retirement community there. And so, so they're not really in Florida. That was a joke for those of you who didn't get it. So this is kind of the picture that we see here of where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac are. This might, you might even argue that this is the best of their life. This is like the best years of their life. What they have been longing and anticipating and waiting for has finally been brought to fruition. The 25 years of waiting for a son has now arrived. They celebrate it. And then we get to this passage. And we see this incredible testing that the Lord places on Abraham. And it causes us to ask, what do we do when the Lord stretches or tests or challenges our faith? When what we know of God doesn't seem to align with what he's asking of us, do we trust that the Lord will provide? That's really the theme that we're going to be seeing, the provision of the Lord and exactly how for Abraham, for Sarah, for Isaac, he provides and how we can trust in the Lord and have renewed, have strengthened, have enduring faith. So we're going to look at that through three points. First, we're going to look at the test of Abraham. Then we're also look at the obedience that they've displayed. 
and then there's sacrifice. So the test, the obedience, and the sacrifice. So let's start by looking at the test. We're actually going to unpack that by looking at these three things. We're going to see how, first and foremost, how Abraham was tested by God, what that means for us, and why it's so hard to trust God. So let us begin, as we see in verse 1. Again, you see this moment where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac are living in the joys of their life. And then all of a sudden we see this, sometime later, God tested Abraham. Dun, dun, dun. You can just feel kind of the weight come with that, with those words. There's no longer peace in paradise. And he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Wow. You can imagine with Abraham here that as he's listening, I just, I just have this picture in my mind as the Lord's talking to him and, and he's responding and he says, you know, Abraham's like, yeah, Lord, I'm, I'm here. Awesome. What I want you to do, yep, I'm listening. Take your son. Okay, I have two of them. Your only son, I still have two of them, um, whom you love, Isaac. Yes, Isaac, I do love him. You are so right, Lord. He's great. Thank you, by the way, for that blessing. So, so good. Go to the region of Moriah. Never been there. Awesome. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. Wait, what? What? Did you just say that? Like, Lord, time out just a second. What? Sacrifice your son. You can feel the weight and tension of this passage. Man, this should stir in us. This should grieve us. should cause us to wonder, how could God ask that? How could Abraham do that? So as we unpack this, there's a couple things I want us to see. First is that this isn't the first time that Abraham's faith has been tested by God. Actually, at the very beginning of this series, in Genesis chapter 12, when the Lord called Abraham, called him to follow him, to leave his homeland, that we see that this is actually written almost identically to the way that the calling of the Lord upon Abraham was written. So what we see, and I'll unpack it for us, is that the calling of Abraham, the Lord said, I want you to go. That was the word, go. I want you to leave this country, your country. We similarly see here, I want you to take your son. And then we see the layers get more and more and more personal as they go. So Abraham, when his call to obey the Lord and to leave his country, says, go, leave your country, leave your people, leave your father's household, and go to the place that I will show you. And as a great act of faith, Abraham goes. Remarkable. He leaves his country, his people, his own household, and he goes to the place that the Lord shows him. And what we see here is he says, take your son, leave your country, your only son, your people, whom you love, Isaac, your family. Go to the place that I will show you. You're going to go to a mountain that I will show you. This isn't the first time that Abraham has been called to trust in the Lord. But this is arguably the greatest this is arguably the hardest call that Abraham has faced. Which leads us to the second thing that we need to see in light of this testing of Abraham, and that's child sacrifice. This shouldn't sit well with you. If you're sitting here and go, yeah, no, that's okay. There's something wrong. We should be disturbed, perturbed, upset that God would ask someone to sacrifice their child, to slay their child. It's one thing even to think about, when I think about this, it's one thing to say, okay, I want you to give your child up and that they will be killed. What he's asking Abraham to do is to kill himself, his child. That should really bother us. Maybe it does. Maybe you're sitting here and going, this bothers me and I don't understand God right now. Good, that's what we're going to talk about. But what we see, I want us to understand that when we look at Scripture, we can sometimes interpret our context into what happens in that culture. And so there's a danger there because we do need to understand something. As we look at child sacrifice, that is just 
unfathomable in our modern context. If someone were to say that, if you were to hear, yeah, you know, this neighbor moved down the street and they, they, well, they don't worship the Lord and they went and, well, they don't have their firstborn anymore because they killed them to this one God. Um, you'd be like, wait, what? Hold on. You'd be calling child services. You'd be calling the police. You'd be like, there's a sociopath, psychopath murderer on my street and we need to take care of that. Because child sacrifice isn't something that happens in our modern culture. But back then, it was not, unfortunately, abnormal. That to worship other deities, other false gods, sometimes required the sacrifice of your children, the literal death of your child. And so in these ancient cultures, a way of, of offering your loyalty, your um, devotion, your love, your affection, showing that I am willing to sacrifice the greatest for you so that you would be pleased with me to these pagan deities, sacrifice children. And we might look at that, we might hear that, we might respond to that and go, man, how primitive, how messed up. Like, I can't even believe offering a child as a sacrifice. Like, that just seems so selfish and so evil and wicked. You're not wrong. But I do want us to know that though we aren't murdering our children, at least I really hope you aren't, um, that we aren't offering child sacrifices in that way, we do sacrifice our children another way. We do sacrifice our families a different way. The altar upon which we kill our children is on the altar of success. The altar that we lay our families down on is on the altar of our own accomplishments and our own egos, our own prominence. Think of the busy businessman or woman who doesn't have time for their family. So they're just cohabitating with these people that their children never actually get the parental love, guidance, care, correction that is required from a family. Or just the busy, the busy parent who really parenting is all about them and not about their children. Or maybe it's even the expectations that we place upon our kids that, well, we want them to do all the things that we couldn't do. And so we want them to go to the best school. We want them to be on the best team. We want them to be the smartest person in their class. We want them to achieve all these things. We want them to look pretty. We want them to be attractive. We want them to be popular. We want all of these things. And so we push them. We force them. We, we kill them on the altar of our own egos. That we live vicariously through our children. That we live and find our worth, our identity, our purpose, not because of who God says we are or what he's done for us, but for what our kids do for us or don't do for us. So we either receive or reject them based on our own status. Now, although we aren't murdering them, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it's a one-for-one -one deal, but I am saying before we throw stones, let us look in the mirror and see how we, too, are just as capable just as culpable, just as sinful as they were before we, we throw stones at that. But what I want us to see here is that what the Lord is calling of Abraham, what the Lord is showing Abraham, is he's actually looking a whole lot more like a pagan deity than he is about the divine, sovereign, good, just God of the universe, doesn't he? He looks more like the pagan deity requiring Abraham to do a familiar thing, offer a sacrifice of your child for me. And so it leaves us this question, what do we do with this? What does this mean for us? Do we take scripture and go, all right, go and do likewise? Like, what, what do we do with this? Um, the answer to that question is no. We do not go and do likewise. But what we see is that there are a few things that I want us to know that as we look at what does this mean for us. The first thing that I want us to know, and, and this is really important, so I want to make sure that you're with me. What I want you to know is that you are not Abraham. I am not Abraham. What I mean by that is sometimes we can read scripture, we can read passages and then put ourselves in the place of the main character. Maybe the Lord's asking me to do this, but what we need to understand is Abraham was experiencing a very unique call from the Lord, one that is not placed on us, one that is not asked of us. Let me unpack that a little bit. We are not Abraham. So first, we have not been chosen to be made a great nation out of our children. We have not been chosen to have a promised son or heir who is going to bring about a blessing both to our family and to the nation that they will come from and all the nations of the world. We don't bear the weight of a covenant made with us particularly so that the nations of the world will be blessed through us. 
We are not Abraham. So for us to look at this and go, well, I'm just going to try to be like Abraham. I want to be like, if the Lord tests me, I just need to make sure that I'm like ready for it. Yes, that's all good. But we need to remember that we live in a different context. We live in light of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. That the covenant lies on him. That we receive the blessing. We are not the one who is bringing about the blessing. So we are not Abraham. So let's not Let's not mix that up. The second thing is that we will be tested. Though we may not be tested like Abraham, though you might not be asked to sacrifice your child, we will be tested. And we actually see this in the book of James. In the book of James chapter 1, it talks about trials and testing, and it says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. That, that part, I know, like as I've read over, over the course of my walk with the Lord, has really frustrated me. Consider it pure joy to experience trials? No, thank you. Um, And we're going to unpack that a little bit. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its works that you may be mature and complete, lacking, not lacking anything. So you might go, I wonder if Abraham considered it pure joy to go through this trial. I wonder if he was jumping up and down going like, all right, time to go sacrifice my child. Probably not. Now, I do want to understand that when we say pure joy, it doesn't mean that we're going, oh man, I just can't wait. Like, how am I going to pay my bills this month? Yes, joy. That's so good. Hey, honey, guess what? I got in a car accident, but guess what? Joy. So it's, it's fine. It's fine. I know our deductible is going to go, it's going to be great. I love trials, don't you? And if you are hitting, like, sitting there and, and watching me up here like, talk about these things and just smile and go, yeah. That's what we should do. We should just be happy about our trials. You would go, this guy's insane. And you'd be right. Because we aren't supposed to mask our trials with happiness. Considering it pure joy doesn't mean that we pretend that the trials are good or that they aren't hard. Considering it pure joy means that we find a greater peace and contentment in the midst of trials. A peace and contentment that's found in a person, and his name is Jesus. We consider it pure joy because we know that God is still good and that the trials we're experiencing are actually for our own growth. That the trials that Abraham was experiencing was to grow him. See, this is the most mature moment in all of Abraham's life, the most mature moment of his faith. And so we see a perseverant faith. And that's what we're going to unpack in just a moment. And so when we experience trials, which we will, if you believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior, I promise you, you will experience trials. But we can rest, we can find joy knowing that it's to give us perseverance, endurance, and that it's not um, without reason. So there are a few things that as we look at that, we said we're going to experience trials and that we're not Abraham. There's a few barriers, there's a few questions we may ask. So you might ask, but why is it so hard to trust God? I understand God's testing us. I understand that, that I'm supposed to consider it all joy, but why is it so hard to trust God when trials come? Why is it so hard to trust God when things get difficult? What are the barriers or what might be a barrier between me and fully surrendering, fully trusting in the Lord? And so there are two barriers I was thinking of, and if these are present in your life, it might be that this is keeping you from trusting in the Lord. The first one is a barrier is a poor relationship with God. A poor relationship with God actually keeps us from trusting him. Here's what I mean by this. At the very beginning, it's really, it's really easy to miss this, but look at the relationship, the context that the Lord talks to Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, which might seem insignificant, he just said his name, but really what we're seeing is that the Lord knows Abraham. The Lord knows Abraham intimately, deeply, and personally. And we also know through the course of Abraham's life that he has been faithfully walking with God. Now, it doesn't mean that Abraham has always been faithful, but that in the midst of his successes and his failures, he has been walking with God. And more importantly, God has been walking with him. And so what we see is that when he calls Abraham, Abraham's reply is, here I am. It reminds me of a few other points in scripture where we see other people who replied the same way. There was the young boy Samuel who became the prophet over Israel. And in the night when the Lord called to him, he said, here I am, Lord, what do you have for me? Or you see the prophet Isaiah when before seeing the vision of the great throne room of God and all of his majesty. And the Lord says, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, 
send me. We see this intimacy, this depth that here I am. Whatever you have, I'm, I'm ready. I've been walking with you this far and you have been walking with me. Here I am. But we, we can have a barrier, a failure of trusting in God because we fail to have a healthy or a vibrant or an active relationship with God. You see, we aren't pursuing God like Abraham has pursued God. We actually put God at a distance because when things get hard, when life gets difficult, we blame God rather than search out answers from God. Instead of going to God and going, God, I don't understand this. Help me. Help me understand. This doesn't seem good. Instead, we just assume that God is bad and we stiff arm him. And so instead of pursuing a relationship with God, we actually trust in ourselves. And so a barrier for us to trust the Lord is a poor relationship with the Lord. The second barrier that we see is actually um, this maturity, this failure to have a mature faith or a poor, poor, no, that's not really the right way to say it, but an immature, that's the right way to say it, an immature faith. Immature. And, and so we actually get this from James as we saw in James 1. Immature faith might mean that you trust in the faith of other people to sustain your faith. So it's not so much your faith in the Lord as it is your faith in other people's faith. You might come on a Sunday morning and hear teaching, which is great. That's part of what we should do as the church, as the bride of Christ. But it just stops there. You're not actively pursuing the Lord outside of this. You're not, when, you, when trials come, you're not considering it joy. You're considering it terror. And you're going, no thanks, pass. And so instead of responding to trials with perseverance, you respond to them by running, by revolting, or by rebelling, rebelling to the Lord. And so we experience hardship and trial and we blame God instead of trust God that he somehow has a plan for us in the midst of the pain. And we show a lack of maturity. We don't consider it joy. We consider it pain. We consider it a nuisance. And so we don't have a mature faith like Abraham had. So now that we've laid a foundation for the testing of Abraham, what has happened that the Lord has called him to sacrifice his son, his only son, whom he loves, even though in, in, when he says only son, he doesn't, he's not negating Ishmael, but it's unique. That's the word unique. This, this promised son, Isaac, Isaac that he is offered, he's asked to, to give up Isaac, and that's his test. Let's look at this remarkable obedience, the obedience of Abraham and Isaac, and then we're going to look at what does this mean for us, and then also, why is it so hard to obey God? But let's look at this remarkable obedience of Abraham and Isaac. So in verse 3, we see a remarkable response from Abraham. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. There's a few things that we should look at and notice here. First, we're going to look at Abraham. Then we're going to look at the obedience of Isaac. Abraham responds so interestingly, if that's a word. He, um, the way that he responds is so interesting because he acts urgently and immediately to what God has said. Think about that. He got up early the next morning. He heard the word from the Lord of what he had to do, and he was quick to respond in obedience. He didn't waste time. How many of us, when we hear God calling us to something, we just go, you know what? I should just figure out if that's really what God's saying. Like, let me just talk to a few other people. Let's just give it some time. Let's see. Like, let's see what's really happening. Maybe God was wrong. Maybe, maybe, this isn't, maybe I'm just misinterpreting God. He, he didn't really want me to, like, kill my son. He really wanted me to interpret his message. And so I'm going to spend time doing that. I'm going to do that. What Abraham does is he acts immediately and urgently. Now, it doesn't mean that Abraham was excited to kill Isaac. 
Like, I know parenting can be tough, and sometimes children are frustrating, but Abraham was not, like, excited to go, man, Isaac is a nuisance. We're gonna... That's not at all what he is talking about. And by the way, that was a joke. We, we don't want to kill our children. I don't think you guys got it, but it's okay. Um, but we, what we see is that he wasn't eager to kill his son, but he was eager to obey the Lord. He wasn't eager to do what he was asked, but he was eager to obey the one who asked him. It's a big difference. Abraham's eagerness, his urgency, his immediate response, showing that he was quick to gather the wood, gather the supplies, gather the people, and to go, shows us tremendously, it shows us remarkably the obedience he was willing to have and the trust he had that God was both good and just, even though he didn't understand exactly how it was going to happen. But he was quick to obey. This actually is something that philosophers have really struggled with, two in particular, that when they've read scripture and look at this, this passage here is what gives them the most trouble, the most fear, the most trembling. And there are two in particular. One is Immanuel Kant, and the other is Soren Kierkegaard, two prominent philosophers who, when they read this passage, actually responded differently than the way that we are today. So Kant, to start with, when he read this passage and saw Abraham's eager response to the Lord to obey, he actually, he, he, in his mind, he believes that Abraham failed the test at this point. That the verse one, when it says God tested Abraham, that his response was Abraham's failure in the test. That like Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham should have pleaded on behalf of Isaac. He should have interceded on behalf of Isaac. That he should have been there saying, Lord, please do anything, but don't kill my son. Don't have me do this. But because Abraham was so quick to respond in compliance with the Lord, Contra says, I, I think that Abraham failed the test here and that God had to intervene because Abraham missed it. Now, that's actually not true. I disagree strongly with Contra. We're going to unpack that and, and see what that, what, why that is. But, but that was the wrestling that Contra had. And Kierkegaard had a similar response. He actually, there's a famous work by Soren Kierkegaard called The Fear and Trembling. And of that, this is actually the fear and trembling for Soren Kierkegaard, that God could somehow ask someone to sacrifice their child. He just couldn't grapple with that. That a God who is supposedly good and just, abounding in love and mercy, could ask something so evil, so heinous, and so wicked. And even though it didn't happen, this caused great fear and trembling. And so instead of seeing this as obedience to the Lord, they saw it as a failure to understand who God really was. But what we're going to see is that this is actually devout strong obedience to the Lord, and that Kant and Kierkegaard both missed what was happening here. And the reason that they missed it, the author of Hebrews actually gives us, sheds a little light on it. The reason they missed it is because Abraham believed in something greater. Abraham believed that something greater was going to happen, and what he believed in was the resurrection. Abraham believed in a resurrection. So in Hebrews chapter 11, we actually see this. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Who he, had embraced, uh, he who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. This is wild because a lot of times in church, we talk about resurrection. We're not shy about it at all because our, our entire hope, the, the foundation of our faith rests in a resurrected Lord Jesus, that we serve a God who is not dead, but who is alive, who is resurrected from death, conquering it and defeating sin. Now, Abraham had never seen resurrection before, yet he believed that God was capable of raising his son from the dead. That's, in, that's remarkable. He knew that God had promised blessing through Isaac specifically. It wasn't that he was going to have another son, but through Isaac there would be blessing. And Isaac didn't have kids. But somehow he was powerful enough to raise his son from the dead. Abraham believed in something greater. And we can hold on to someone greater. Which then shows us the next person, the obedience of Isaac. See, Isaac in this passage, he only has a few lines, but Isaac was a willing sacrifice here. But there's a few things we need to know about Isaac to understand how and why we get that he was a willing sacrifice. First is that it says in the passage that he was a boy, or in some of your translations it says a young lad, which is kind of fun because that's an old way of saying it. But he says that he was a boy. 
And what the hard part with this is, is that in the Hebrew, that translation of boy can really mean anyone from roughly around the age of five to 40. So that's a really, really wide margin. Of, of, I mean, I don't know how many five-year-olds you assume are boys as you do 40-year-olds, but, but apparently the Hebrew text does. And so, um, but then even to make it more complex, is it's also said in the perspective of Abraham, who's like 120 at this point. So for him, a 60-year-old's like a boy. Like, ah, this young buck, you know, whatever. Um, so it's hard for us, to, it's hard to understand um, in that context when he says boy, well, like, so he just took a five-year-old kid and offered him as a sacrifice? But no, that's not what happened. We actually know through context that uh, many scholars believe that Isaac was really roughly around 18 or 20 years old. Why is that important? Because he was old enough to know exactly what was happening. He knew that he was the sacrifice. See, there's a point when Isaac asks Abraham, he had likely done a number of these sacrifices with his father. And so when he says, hey, dad, um, I, I feel like we're missing something here. Where's the lamb? It's because he knew that the lamb was required. And then he also, I, I believe, and many scholars believe, that when Abraham replies, he's not lying to him. When Abraham replies to Isaac, he's not just trying to lie so that it calms Isaac's heart. He said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. He's like, oh, okay, cool. My son. That my son, that comma my son, is actually Abraham identifying, you are the lamb. You, my son, are the one that's going to be sacrificed. So this boy, this man, understands what is going to happen. And you can imagine that an 18, 20-year-old likely could overpower a 120-year-old. Like in a fight, that's, pro that's not going to... So it's not that Abraham, or it's not that Abraham was somehow forced or, or um, will-powered Isaac to go on the altar. But instead what we see is that Isaac's response is staggering. He doesn't say, Dad, you're insane. You're going to kill me. Like, really? You brought me on this three-day journey to kill me? Are you, you're a monster. You're, how could you do that? He doesn't talk back to his father. He also doesn't overpower Abraham and run away. Because he, he easily could have done that. But he also doesn't reason with Abraham and go, you know what? You probably misunderstood God. Like, how, how, he, wouldn't, he knows me. Remember, I'm the promised blessing. Like, you wouldn't, he wouldn't ask you to do this. He doesn't reason. He doesn't get out of it. He doesn't try to stop it. Abraham trusted in his heavenly father as much as he trusted in his earthly father. Abraham and Isaac, or Isaac was the willing sacrifice. He willingly was tied down to this altar. And we see that this is actually the fruition. It's the culmination of a promise of a, a moment where last week we looked at where the Lord speaks to Abraham. And he says to teach the way of the Lord. So if you look at Genesis 18, the Lord is talking to Abraham and he says this, for I have chosen him, being Abraham, so that he, Abraham, will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and doing what is just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. And we see that Abraham's response, that Isaac's response, is the culmination of this, that Isaac has learned the way of the Lord, what is right and what is just. And that even though it results in his sacrifice, he trusts that this God is good, that this God is right, and that this God is just. And if my father trusts that father, we're good. Remarkable obedience. Remarkable obedience. The obedience of Abraham and Isaac. So what does this mean for us? What do we do with this? Because like, like we said earlier, you're not being called to go be killed or kill your child. But what it does mean is that we are called to obedience. Each and every one of us is called to obedience. And actually, obedience, sometimes we look at that and we think obedience in the light of our parents. Like, we need to obey your parents. That's a good thing. We should all do that. And we should obey the Lord. Like, that's a good practice. We should all figure that out and, and do that. But Scripture has a much stronger stance on obedience than we do. And we see this actually in a number of passages, but one most clearly is in 1 Samuel chapter 15, where the prophet Samuel is talking to King Saul, who has just directly disobeyed the Lord. And he says this, but Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in obeying the Lord? 
To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. This is reiterated in the book of Proverbs. It's also reiterated in the New Testament that to offer sacrifice is less than obeying the Lord. Or to put it the other way, to obey the Lord is greater than burnt offerings. Ironically, Abraham and Isaac are facing both. That obedience requires burnt offering. But for us, we might look at this passage and go, okay, well, I see what Abraham's doing, so what is my Isaac? What do I need to sacrifice? That's the wrong question. That's not what this text is implying for us. Instead, it's going, what do I need to obey? How do I need to obey the Lord? What is he calling me to that I need to be obedient to? It's not so much what do I need to lay down as a sacrifice. Again, we are not Abraham, nor are we Isaac. But what is the Lord calling us to obey? Obedience is greater than sacrifice. But there's a few barriers. There's a few things that prevent us from obeying the Lord. Sometimes it's, why is it so hard to obey God all the time? Why is it hard to trust in him? Why is it hard to obey him? And so if you see these barriers present in your life, it might be that these things are present and keep you from obeying God. And the first one that we see is that we fail to trust in what God says about us and himself. As we sang earlier, I am who you say I am, we sing that, we affirm that, but a lot of times we don't believe that. Let me say that again. A lot of times when we hear that, I am who you say I am, we, we hear that, we sing that, but we don't believe that. That doesn't change our day-to-day life. And so a barrier for our obedience is that we actually don't believe what God says about us. We don't believe that we have been chosen by him. We don't believe that we've been saved by him. We don't believe that we have been um, raised to life with Christ, that we are, have an inheritance waiting for us because of Jesus Christ. And so we fail to obey because we don't, God, what has he done for me? Why do I need to obey him? I don't believe that what he says is really true and should change my life. But more importantly than that, we also don't believe what he says about himself, that he is both good and just. We believe that God is actually less than good and less than just because of the circumstances and our experiences. And so instead of pursuing the Lord, like we talked about just a moment ago, we actually distance ourselves from the Lord and make it difficult to obey God because instead we trust in our own insights, our own understandings, rather than his. Because we fail to see him as who he says he is, which is good and just. The other thing we see And that that not only do we not believe what he says, but we fail to live in the way of the Lord. Just like Isaac was. Isaac was raised to follow the ways of the Lord. Well, for us, we might come, again, we might come to church, we might listen to a sermon, but we aren't actually seeking the Lord out on our own. We aren't reading scripture and meditating on it. We have not hidden God's word in our heart that we might not sin against him. Our prayer lives revolve more around us than it does God. Instead of seeking him, we seek ourselves. And so we have a hard time obeying God because really we're more concerned about us. We want God to obey our will rather than us obey God's will. So now we've seen the test of Abraham and the obedience of Abraham and Isaac. Let's look at our last point, the sacrifice. The sacrifice that is made. And so this is the the final part of this passage. In verse 11, it says, But the angel of the Lord called out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham! Again, Abraham replies, here I am, he replied. Do not lay the hand on, a boy, on the boy. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. And he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham forth from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand of the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. So we see that, I just want to like paint this picture for you of what what is happening here. So at this altar that Abraham has set up, he has a son who is willingly tied and laid on the altar. And he takes the knife. And I just imagine tears in his eyes as he is going, okay, I really trust, Lord, that this is going to work out. 
I really pray that this is going to work out. That you're actually going to do what I think you're going to do. That you're going to raise him back to life. I am ready. He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't wait. But then the Lord stops him. He says, hold on, hold on. And we see that the Lord never actually wanted Abraham to sacrifice his son. That that was never, ever the point. But he wanted Abraham to see the fear of the Lord, which we can translate faith. He wanted to know that Abraham was devoted to the Lord, that he had fear of the Lord. For I know that you have not withheld anything. Your son, your only son, whom you love, you have not withheld them from me. I know that you love me. Now we read that, we might go, that's kind of a sick joke. Like, what kind of practical joke is God playing on Abraham? It seems like he's just kind of stroking his ego. Like, hey, I just want to make sure you love me, so go kill your child. I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. JK, lol, like, it's fine. Um, that's not, like, it, and we might wrestle with God in that and just go, that seems really malicious. And kind of, a, kind of you might still have a hard time with that. But what we see is that God is actually showing us himself. You see, when we read this passage, like I mentioned just a moment ago, we can sometimes interpret it and go, so what am I supposed to sacrifice to the Lord? You know, the Lord provided a ram. He provided a, a replacement so Isaac didn't have to die. What an amazing thing. But what am I called to sacrifice to God? But that's the wrong question. Now, that might be a question we get from other passages of Scripture, but here we're not actually seeing what do we have to sacrifice for the Lord. Instead, what he is showing us through the story of Abraham is what the Father has sacrificed for us. That is the point of this story. That is the point of what's happening. That is the point of what the Lord is teaching Abraham. That in a few thousand years, I am going to display my sacrifice. You, what you had to see in part, I will experience totally. You thought you had to sacrifice your son. I will sacrifice my son. That's the point of this passage. That's what we see. It's not about what we can sacrifice. It's not about even about what Abraham sacrificed, but about what the Father has sacrificed for us. See, the whole, God, the whole story of the Old Testament, the whole story of Abraham is pointing to this person, Jesus. This is actually the clearest picture of the gospel in the entire Old Testament. And it, we see the whole thread, the whole scope of the arc of the gospel, the, the salvation we find in Jesus Christ through his sacrificial death, through his resurrection. We see this all here present in what the Lord is showing so that we can know exactly what it costs our Father, so that we could empathize with our Father, so that we could experience with our Father. So let me walk through that with you. So as Abraham is called, take your son, your only son whom you love, go and sacrifice him. We know from John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. And we see that the blessing that's promised Abraham, this, the blessing that we receive as children of God, if we believe in him, that the Father sacrificed his Son. We also see that the Lord, or that Abraham placed wood on the back of Isaac. And we see that Jesus carried the cross to Calvary. That for three days they journeyed to the death of Isaac, and on the third day the Lord gave Isaac back. And then three days after the Lord died, he rose again, conquering sin and death. We also see that Isaac was willing to sacrifice himself, and that Jesus was a willing sacrifice. That in the Garden of Gethsemane he said, Father, let not my will be done, but let what your will be done. That Jesus was our willing sacrifice. And then this is what has blown me away. This is the part that I, I just, as I, as I read it and as I studied it, this just floored me. There are two things. First, the mountain that they went to. So this mount, the Mount Moriah, is one day going to become the city of Jerusalem. And on this mount, they're going to build a temple called Solomon's Temple. And at this temple, they will offer sacrifices of lambs. And these sacrifices is to be the atonement, the propitiation for the sin of Israel. That they will continually carry up these, these lambs to the, to the temple on this mount, and they will shed the blood of the lamb for the sins of Israel. That the Lord is it's representing what is happening here. The Lord provides the, another. The Lord provides a replacement, a substitute. And that one day, outside of the city of Jerusalem, on another hill, Jesus, the Lamb of God, 
has sacrificed on our behalf. That the Lord is carrying his son to the mountain to be killed for us. And then this is where, oh man, this is where it gets really even better. We see that when, when Abraham receives the ram and they sacrifice him instead, he says, he says to, to Isaac first, God himself will provide. And then in the moment he said, God will provide. And then it said that this mountain, it is said on the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. You know what's interesting about that? Is that Abraham doesn't say God has provided. It doesn't say God did provide. Instead, it's future tense, not past tense. Why? Because it's pointing ahead. It's showing us something greater. Because you know what happened is that he said God will provide a lamb, but a ram showed up. Because 2,000 years later, a lamb would come. That God will provide and that he did provide in his son, Jesus Christ. So that we, like Isaac, could be freed. So that we, like Isaac, wouldn't have to die. He provided the true lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. On this mountain, it will be said that God will provide, and he did, so that we can find salvation in Jesus Christ, our Lord. This whole passage is about him. It's not about us. So when we ask, what does it take to have this faith to trust? Well, do you trust that God has provided for your greatest need? In Jesus, because if he has provided your greatest need, he'll take care of your other needs as well. If he has provided for you, if he has not withheld his son, why would he withhold anything else from us? And that's actually what we see. And last week I, I closed with this from Romans 8, and I'm going to do it again because we need to be reminded of this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who is raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you trust that he has provided? And do you trust that he will provide? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your provision. We thank you that in your great love, Lord, that we get to see through the story, through what you put Abraham through, we get to see what you went through. That what Abraham experienced partially, you experienced fully. That you did give up your son, Jesus. And that through his death, we get life in you. That we, like Isaac, have been spared. Lord, I pray that we would live lives changed by that 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 would transform us, that we would be reminded of who you say we are, that we, reminded, that we would be reminded of what you have given us in your son, Jesus. We love you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen.